Hi, I'm Emily Williams, the founder of the top success and personal development company for driven women called I Heart My Life. I grew my company from $442 to seven figures in my first 18 months. And since then, it's become a movement for women who know they're meant for something big and refuse to settle. At I Heart My Life, we operate with the belief that anything is possible and no dream is too big. We're all about combining business strategy, deep mindset work, high performance practices, money tips, and a whole lot of lifestyle to help you get the results you deserve in all areas of life. Because after all, we only get this one shot. This is your one-stop shop for all things inspiration. So grab your favorite drink and a pen and a notebook and get ready to be inspired. Oh, and if you're not a member of our community, go to iheartmylife.com slash join and receive all of our emails and announcements. And while you're at it, copy and paste this episode link and share it with three friends. Now on to the episode. Hey, it's Emily Williams, the founder of I Heart My Life and your host of the I Heart My Life show. This is episode 234, Heartbreak, Healing and Life After Loss with Kelsey Chittick. So Kelsey is here to talk all about losing her husband at the young age of 42, completely unexpectedly. She is talking about her incredible new book that's officially out now called Second Half, where she dives into that whole experience of losing her husband, supporting her herself and her kids and going through the grieving process, and ultimately how she healed and transformed herself throughout that period of time. This book is so powerful. I highly recommend it. It really supported me in understanding how to move through heartbreak, grief, everything that comes with losing someone who you love, especially unexpectedly. And I think a lot of us are nervous about death and we wonder what we would do if the worst case scenario happened. Well, Kelsey lived it and now she's here to tell us how she did it and the things that worked for her. And I found this really honest conversation kind of soothing because it helped me really understand and acknowledge the fact that even if the worst were to happen, I could move through it, I would be strong enough to handle it, and I would get to the other side. So I hope it's the same for you. Let's dive in. This episode is sponsored by the I Heart My Life Signature Course. This course is a long time in the making. It's based on my incredible book called I Heart My Life. It's literally some of those chapters broken down into a self-study course that provides you with everything you need to uncover what your purpose is and move full speed ahead towards taking action and making your big dreams a reality. We cover mindset, money mindset, goal setting, success tips, how to develop your own support system, everything you need to go from A to Z uh, in terms of creating a life that you love. So if you go to iheartmylifecourse.com, you'll learn more and you'll be able to sign up right away today and be able to start moving forward towards that big vision, that thing that you know you're meant for. And remember, you are worth it. You deserve to live a life that you love. So go ahead and check it out now. Welcome to the I Heart My Life show, Kelsey. I'm so honored to have you here to share your story and to talk about your amazing book. Thank you so much. I'm excited. I'm so glad we met a couple months ago, maybe. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, that is a great story, actually. So we met at a party in Austin and my audience knows that we're now moving to Texas, which is completely random. Um, We met through our mutual friend, Nita. So I'm just, yeah. And then immediately we started chatting and you were just really welcoming and warm. And then you started to talk a little bit more about your story, which we're going to get into today. And I was just blown away by your strength and all of the knowledge that you have also about healing and, you know, shifting your mindset and transforming your life after experiencing something so challenging. So I'm just, yeah, like I said, just honored to have you here to talk to our audience about this topic. Thanks. I'm excited. So tell us a little bit about what the book is about first and foremost, and then I'm going to go into some specific parts of the book because I've definitely read it and devoured it um, that I want to highlight for everyone listening. Perfect. So the book is called Second Half. Um, The reason it's called Second Half is because the story is about my husband um, passing away uh, in front of my kids, and he died when I was 40. Um, So I kind of thought it felt like a real, like 40s, like the year you go to Cancun with all your girlfriends, you're like, the best years are coming, you know, and you're so excited and you, you, you've you made it or you feel like you've made it in some ways. You've gotten through your 20s and your 30s and you've kind of grown up. And for me, it was the opposite. So when I turned 40, a couple months later, he died. And then also it's called second half because my husband was a NFL football player and he won a Super Bowl and he played for seven years in the league. And so... You know, they always talk about like, don't worry about what happens at halftime. We've got the second half. And so early on, I was like, I got to I got to like crush the second half, because if not, I'm just going to end up devastated. So the book is about just his um, our life together. We met when I was 19 and then kind of how we fell in love, had our children and then talks about his death. And the, the rest of the book, the second half of the book is about our healing. Hmm. Yeah, I just love we were chatting about this before we jumped on. I love how you split the book up into those different kind of segments, the college years when you guys first met, getting married, having your kids and moving into, you know, that period of life and then ultimately what happened after that. Yeah. And one of the things I really want to highlight for people is, you know, you said to me before we jumped on that you're a much better person today. And so I really want to dive into how you take something like this, something that's so random for lack of a better word, something that's unexpected and turn it into what you've turned it into today. And I know that you obviously would give anything to have him back, but there have been some positives that have come from this whole experience. Totally. I mean, I I grew up in a really Buddhist spiritual family. So we always had these conversations like pain leads to growth. And my mom was studying the Enneagram and she was doing Wayne Dyer and all that stuff when nobody else was. and we, we had these, these conversations in our home. So I always knew this stuff could help you grow, but I had, I lived a very good life. Like I didn't have a lot of problems. My parents got divorced, you know, there was issues here and there, but mostly my life was really good. And the more my life was good, the more anxious and controlling I got. Like, so I was pretty, I was, I was anxious. I swam in college. I was uptight as a kid, but once I had my own children, like I went crazy. I was just worried about everything. Great. I mean, I just, I was super controlling, super uptight. I started being less and less fun. And I knew that what I was trying to do was just like keep everything okay. Because I had this great fear that like the whole thing could fall apart. And um, when it did, I had a lot of tools that I had grown up with, but I really was mad because I didn't want to go through it. I really liked my life when it was good. 
I didn't want to be a widow. I didn't want my kids not to have a dad. I didn't want to lose the love of my life. And I was just so overwhelmed. Um, but then at some point, not too long into it, I was like, you know, I've got a choice here. And it really did feel like it felt sort of like those existential moments where I was like, this is everything we've talked about in my family my whole life. Like you make a choice right here. Like today you decide like all this, the crap that you've been spewing to people that didn't have good lives. And, you know, when I had my perfect life and my perfect kids, I'd be like, what you really need to do is just like meditate and relax. And like, and they're looking at me like, listen, lady, like I would love to, but like I have been abused. I've been beaten. I have no money. Um, So this was really humbling because I, I was on the other end of it. Like everything had fallen apart for me. And so I don't know, at some point, all that training and all the things that I think all of us do when we're on a personal growth path, it, it clicked in. And I was like, come on, Kelsey, like, don't, don't let this be the end of like how this story ends. So that's yeah. sort of started it. I'd love to take it back to that period before he had the heart attack, which we're going to go into when you were feeling really anxious and you didn't actually know why you were feeling anxious. Like you described, there have been periods of anxiety. You were really uptight with the kids, but looking back, do you feel like there was a part of you that actually knew that something was wrong? 100%. I mean, whether this is good or not, I always, I think a woman's intuition is the most underestimated tool in the world. I think if you are sitting enough time in in meditation or quiet, you can feel when things are flowing and things are okay. And you can also feel when there's about to be something. There is an internal compass that we have been given by God or the universe or whatever that lets you know something's coming. And you can also feel like when things are good and you're kind of in the flow. So about two years before he died, I just couldn't put my finger on it. And I've always used intuition to guide, you know, where I went to college or if I like a guy or, you know, what house to buy. Like I've always sat quietly and been like, does this feel right? But this was overwhelmingly like alarms, like something's off prepare. And actually what happened those two years before is I just started digging back into the spiritual books, like untethered soul or when things fall apart, when things were fine. I mean, we, he was fine. I also was picking up that something was off with him, but you know, when you're with somebody like your husband, you've been together so long, you're like, maybe it's just they're overwhelmed or, but I knew for sure something was coming and I knew it was going to be when I traveled Mm. and everyone was like, relax. Like everyone travels, working women travel. And I was like, listen, ladies, I'm just telling you, mark my words. And I've had other experiences since then. I've had a couple other things that were challenging that I knew were coming and The good news is now I know those are just big growth opportunities, but before I lived through a couple of them, I was like, this is absolutely the scariest thing on earth. So that takes us to the day when everything started to happen and change. So tell us a little bit more about the trip that you took and everything that happened during that time. Yeah. So a couple, about a year and a half before I, when I was starting to feel anxiety, like I said, I started to read all these books and I ended up reading The Code of the Extraordinary Mind by Vision Lakiani, which is just a, a great book. And it kind of it made me really stop and think. And long story short, we ended up having a friend that reached out to Vision who said, hey, you you and your wife should come to this event. It's called A-Fest. It's done by Mind Valley. Um, and I had never even done anything like that. But the guy that had called couldn't go. So he said, do you want to go with my wife? So that weekend, um, 
that Nate died, I actually went to my first like spiritual retreat in Jamaica, which I'm a stand-up comic. So half of it, I make fun of half of it. Like I love, but I'm, you know, I always have like a, I take it with a grain of salt, but it really was like the greatest weekend. And um, once I stopped being judgy and thinking like I had to, you know, put everyone in a box, I just kind of relaxed and ended up having this extremely amazing spiritual experience and just getting to know people and talking about how to come get through hard times. And I just had a blast. I had no anxiety the whole weekend I was there, like zero for the first time. Normally when I travel, I want to get home to my kids and we had the best time. And then the last day, which is 11-11, which was November 11th, um, I woke up and I just remember I got, I like went for a swim and I was like, oh my God, this, this has changed me. Like I'm different now. I want to go do something good. I want to be somebody that, that contributes and right before we went on this last um, excursion on these boats, I got a phone call. And um, basically my husband had that morning woken up and taken, we had two kids, nine and 12, uh, my daughter and my son. And he went to Sky Zone, which is like an indoor trampoline park. And if you knew my husband, only he would die at like an indoor like trampoline park um, during toddler time. It's just ridiculous, you know? Like, I feel like he left me with one last joke. Like you gotta be, he like was had the orange socks on that sticky the trampoline, but he went there and um, they jumped for about ten minutes. And my kid said that he was just looked really tired. And then at some point, he just my daughter said something like, "Daddy, watch me." And he's like, "You're the most beautiful thing." And then he said, "Uh oh, I've got to lay down." And then he just collapsed. And so my kids ended up. Um, thinking he was joking for a little bit. So they went over and tried to get him up and he was about 290 pounds, six, five. So that didn't work. And then my son said that he just got closer to him and he was, he was like, I knew something wasn't right. So they ended up getting people to come in and they did the defibrillator and the story goes, goes dark from there. Right. And so you were still in Jamaica and I know in the book, you talk about how you had 40 minutes to catch the next flight and all of your friends helped you and got you on that plane. And when you were sitting there, you were, you know, inconsolable, essentially throwing up and crying and all of that. And I I don't want to give too much of the book away because I really want people to read it. So I want people to understand that like, this is something you have to read because it's so powerful. But I love the point in the book where you talk about the woman who came and was able to support you. Are you able to share that? Sure. Um, I think now for sure that in your toughest moments, angels surround you. I, I just don't think we're alone to handle. I, I think there's gifts always if we pay attention. So when I got onto the plane, you know, half of when you're going through trauma, you're you literally are floating above yourself being like, oh, it's me. Like I'm the one with the dead husband. It's hard to comprehend. So I, I was crazy. I was so there was only one flight back to the United States. There was one seat. They had already closed that boarding door, which is like the only law that's never broken in the world. And somehow, because Jamaicans are cool, you know, they're like easygoing somehow through, and you can see it read in the book, I got on that flight. Um, but I had a panic attack that was so bad and I was throwing up and I would assume most people thought I'd like party too hard or I was just, you know, some woman who forgot to take my prescription meds or whatever it was. And at some point, um, about 20 minutes into the flight, this, and, and there was people all around me and everyone just has their headsets in. And that's like, that's another thing. We like I will never ever not take care of somebody who I see. I will never not make it my business. And I think before I might have been like, oh, poor thing, she's not doing well. Um, but really that's what everybody did. 
did. They kind of just like went into their hole, um, except this big, beautiful Jamaican woman. Um, when the seatbelt sign went off, I just felt someone standing next to me and she just put her hand on my shoulder and she actually put her hand on my forehead and she just started to talk to me and like whisper in this beautiful Jamaican accent, just saying like, you know, there's people praying for you everywhere. I have no idea what you're going through, baby girl. And she kept calling me baby girl. Like she was my mother. Like I was, I was being taken care of, you know, and she was just kind of sitting there with me and just kept saying, you're going to be okay. And you're stronger than you think. And, um, all over the world, people are sending you good energy and you've got to decide how you're going to deal with this, whatever it is that you have coming on the other side of this plane ride. And it just, just having one person help me change the trajectory of my experience, because at some point when she was doing that, I got peaceful and I was like, Oh wait, I, I actually need to pull it together. Not that I was like pushing away the feelings, but I was like, I've got two children. I don't know their dad is dead because by the time he died, he was at the hospital. So they didn't know. Um, so her, her showing up probably was the turning point in that experience for me that I wasn't alone. Mm. And that happened many times since and continues to. Yeah. And I just love that reminder, obviously for a million different reasons, but one, as you described, like how often do we, you know, just ignore the person who is suffering. And sometimes we might think, oh, they don't want to be bothered or they might be embarrassed. We don't want to make a fuss, but it doesn't take much just to say, are you okay? And ask the question. Yeah. And they can always, I mean, I think the thing is when you see somebody hurting, all they want is someone to see them and they can tell you, you know what? I'm good. Thank you. But just us starting and everyone's on their phones. Now everybody's got their headphones in. We've lost a little bit of that humanity and now, I, I mean, it's the same thing. Like when you see homeless people, like, please don't walk away from them or not. You don't have to give them anything, but you definitely need to honor that they're a human being that's in a tough situation. Right. Um, that's really all that anybody wants is someone to say like, hey, do you, do you need a hand? And then they can decide. But um, that was a beautiful moment. And I, I never, I never saw her again. Now, as time goes by, you're like, did it happen? Was it real? Like, you know, it just the whole thing sometimes feels like a huge dream. Um, yeah which is good and bad. So you got back to the US, yeah. you told your children, you guys entered into this whirlwind of craziness, trying to find a new normal, doing yeah. all the logistical things that no one thinks about when somebody dies. Yeah. And again, we could spend so much time talking about all of that, but I really want people to read the book. And you know, the things that I really kind of was excited to hear about, again, for lack of a better word, was your transformation and how you actually were able to move through that. And it wasn't just you, it was you supporting your young children and moving through it. And I really loved how you shared how they went through it in different ways. They were different ages. They had different perspectives. They had different relationships with um, their father. And so you, you know, had to navigate not only your own grief, but theirs. And one of the things that I thought was so powerful was just your description of your son um, sharing at the funeral, his experience with his dad. And just like, I mean, 
for him to be 12 years old, as I was reading that, I was like, no way he was like 20 something or, you know, so mature and just so, so powerful to read those words. And so it's obvious that you have such incredible kids and that your husband in a short period of time had such a huge impact on them. And at the same time, you know, it was really hard for all of you. Um, So one of the things that I really uh, loved that you decided to do was to start to meditate every single day. You said, I started meditating every day. At first, it was something I needed to do. Then it became something I wanted to do. Then it became something I had to do in order to live the life I wanted to live. And maybe that falls under the category of the things that your mom taught you that you thought you didn't really need how to practice. So I'm curious to know, is that something you still do today? Do you still meditate? Do you still find power in that? Oh my gosh. My friends are like, there's no one who sits quietly more than me. Um, I'm pretty outgoing, pretty loud, pretty talkative in social things. And I've always thought I was extroverted. But what I realized is I, my entire central nervous system was wrecked after he died. I mean, just the stress of going through that type of trauma and that type of like sudden death and then having to come home and take care of kids. I just physically, I was, I wasn't well. Um, Cause your whole body's in, you know, in just so scared. I mean, it's, it's pure fear. And um, so early on, I just, I had to calm down. I had to get my heart rate down. So meditation at first was just kind of checking it off the list. Like, okay, everyone says you should meditate. And it takes a while. Like meditation is really frustrating in the beginning because you hear all this great stuff, but all you're doing the whole time is hating how bad you are at meditating. And um, it, t- it takes a couple of years um, of just saying, hey, listen, I've got five minutes or 10 minutes. And I used to hate when people would be like, you'll get it one day. And I'll be like, please, like I've not gotten it yet. I haven't gotten the feeling that they say you can get. And I have to say now, um, I do not step out of my bed without doing, I actually do Sam Harris's waking up app. So I start with that. Um, and I do 20 minutes in the morning. I normally try to do whenever I start to feel that I don't know people, you know, anxiety or any type of like heart race are excited or scared because they kind of present the same. I used to kind of just keep going or maybe clean something or wipe something down or organize something. And now I just sit and I try to like, even before getting on this podcast, because I'm excited. I'm happy to talk to you. And then I'm like, no, Kelsey, like turn it down a notch. So I meditate probably an hour a day, which I know people are like, how can you do it with kids? Well, it's the same way you can do anything. It just has to be something you can't live without. Um, so sleep and meditation, I think women underestimate. Um, and so it is a huge part of my life. I would say it is one of the biggest things that has changed the way I walk through the world. It also keeps my brain from being crazy because this brain is not safe. This, this thing goes and I know the feeling (laughs) she is not a good place to live. And now the, the more I meditate, the more I can see, like, she's just firing. She's nothing. She has nothing to do with me. It's just like a machine that's just spitballing like thoughts all day. Um, so meditations, let me just watch it and then be like, that's really interesting. Look at you crazy lunatic inside. And then I can just ground into here. I'm like, right now I'm fine. Right now I'm fine. Right now I'm fine. And we're always fine right now. Even yeah. when we're not. So yes, I'm, Thank a, you for I'm sharing a, that. Yeah. I'm a huge meditator. Well, I'm, I'm really inspired by that because of course, all of us have all the excuses about why we can't meditate and, you know, the thoughts that come up. 
when we're stressed and how in the world are we supposed to sit silently when there's so much happening? And like, you were able to figure it out after losing the love of your life and, you know, having two kids to, to help through this whole process. Like if you were able to do that, that gives me hope (laughs) Um, for all of my crazy times and all my excuses for not meditating. Yeah. And I remember I, I'm going to mess up the quote, but there's some master meditator and he, or like some global person that was trying to make a huge decision about wars. And, and they said, you have a very busy day. So you, you need to meditate for 30 minutes. And he said, I have a very busy day. I need to meditate for two hours. Like right. it's the opposite of what you think. Like the, the mm-hmm. more busy, the more we have to sit and slow down because then we can tap into this moment and we can make decisions in the now as opposed to something that happened in the past we're afraid of or something we're dreading or scared. I mean, the amount of time women spend outside of the present moment, planning and organizing and checking lists and all of that. It's, it's amazing that we're all not just locked up somewhere True. <laughs> in a crazy house. And I know one of the other things that we actually talked about personally, when we first met you was plant medicine and how that had transformed you and, and really supported you through this process. And there was another quote in the book that I really loved from, I don't remember exactly who he was, but it was a gentleman you were speaking to and you thought he was a little bit crazy, but there was one yeah. thing that he said, yeah, yeah, Jack, that really resonated with you around. You basically said you didn't want to do the plant medicine because you didn't want to die. And he said, well, you're currently in fear and experiencing all of this emotion. And you know, how is that living? That's essentially death right now. Um, I don't know if I totally butchered that. Is that the gist of it? (laughs) Yeah. Basically I was like, I just don't want to die. And he's like, but look at how you're living. Like you're filled with fear and anxiety. That's not life. That's death. Mm. I was like, you're right. Like it was so miserable to be me because I was trying to control everything. And I always knew, let go, let God. I knew all the sayings. I couldn't do it. I couldn't get it. Mm. I couldn't access it. I, it wasn't that I didn't have the information or the desire. Um, it's just I, and what I would tell people, because it's just now clicking for me. I'm talking like in the last couple of months, and I've been through a couple other things that really, like, I'm done. I'm done being afraid. I'm done. I, I just don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to think about what can, could happen. I don't want to be spending my days, you know, hedging my bets. Because mm-hmm. I've been through a bunch of, you know, they always say like 99% of the things you worry about don't happen. Well, like all of mine did. Mm-hmm. There was a couple of those. So just like things that you're like, no. And actually after my, my husband died, my kids broke five bones because grief sometimes weakens the system. I mean, we just went through, we had lawsuits and health issues and everything. And now I'm like, no, we actually, we're okay. We're okay, no matter what happens. But why waste my time worrying about it? Because I'm going to have to deal with it when it comes anyway. Um, So he just, you know, that saying that I was like, if there's any way I can get some space from this anxiety and this just fear of death is basically, I mean, I hate to break it down to that because, but what I've found is that's ultimately, especially once you have kids or you love somebody, you know, or you have a husband, you just like, please don't die. Because I don't know what I'd do without you if you died. And I'm here to tell you, like, you'll be okay if somebody dies. Mm. And it won't be fun. And it's not, it's not enjoyable. And it's hell on earth. But you will be okay. Because um, death isn't the end. And I think that's what the the plant journey gave me. um, Was just the perspective that this is bigger than we understand. And, uh, you know, it just it freed me up to look at things differently and have access to Nate in a different way um, that I always believed, but I actually, it almost felt like it happened um, when I was on the, the plant medicine. So 
totally out of character for me. I'm like the most uptight, nerdy, you know, person and never did anything. But I would, you know, it, I, that guy also said, if it calls, if the plants will call for you. You don't ever, you never want to convince anybody. Like if, right. you, if you're meant to do that type of therapy, you'll know because at some point you'll be like, yeah, it's time. Um, but it's not something you want to talk someone into. It's definitely a personal choice, but man, it, it changed my life forever. Um, and I know in the book you talk about or how somebody recognized in you that you were more worried about Nate than you were about yourself. And I thought that was so interesting. So in what ways have you shifted into whether it's, you call it self-love or self-care, like in what ways have you put the focus on you since all of this happened? It's so funny. You know, I think interestingly that, that, that feeling was, I was so bad, sad he was dead. I felt bad for him. I was so sick that this man that loved life and loved our kids and loved, loved everything about life. Like he died. And I was just uh, obsessed with the fact that like he didn't get to do what he wanted to do. And over time through a lot of therapy, I realized like that dude's right where he needs to be. Like we all have a part in who we choose to be born to. We all have a part in how we die. I believe that somehow that, that, you know, there's, there's choice all along the way. So not just like, you know, people are always like, well, I chose, I chose my parents or I chose my birth. My, my friends are now my family. Well, Every, if, if there's choice anywhere, there's choice everywhere. So I had to come to terms that like, that was just the end of Nate's life. 42 years was just the end for him. It didn't mean he didn't have a full life. It just meant his full life was 42. Um, and then I would always hear him because he was so fun. He was like, Kelsey, get over yourself. Like this is, why are you wasting your time worrying about me? Like there's a huge life to be had, you know, and I write this in the book, like go have sex with people, like laugh, travel, like loosen up lady. And so little by little, I realized the greatest gift I could do if I really was trying to help him, which he doesn't really need help where he is, I don't believe, was to let him go. And I mean, not let him go in the sense of the anxiety around him and just be like, we're good. Like all he wants, I would assume, is for us to be good. So he can go do whatever he does in the, you know, fighting the holy fires or whatever you do when you go wherever you go. Um, so that it switched. And I just realized too, my kids so desperately wanted me to stop being obsessed with his death. And they still, yeah. they're like, lady, please. Like just kids are my, they're like, okay, we know he died. Like, do you have to talk about it all the time? Write a book. It's like annoying. Like, they're like just, just like move on because kids teach you that. Mm. I loved how they taught you to not try and control everything. And, you know, you reflected on how much Nate was present with them as well. And so you started trying to just listen instead of trying to fix everything. Yeah. Listening is like the hardest thing for me to do because I'm a talker. Um, it's a real problem just in every part of my life. But yeah, at some point they were in so much physical pain and I was so in over my head with just the magnitude of loss and just the exhaustion. And remember, because Nate was my husband, everybody around me that loved me was grieving him too. Mm-hmm. There was nobody that wasn't broken. So his parents were broken. His brother was broken. My parents were broken for me. Um, and so we just, we were out, we had very little resources to kind of um, fix anything. And somehow my father-in-law, who's a minister at uh, Harvard and just an exceptional man studied, you know, as a Lutheran minister, but studied Buddhism also, he was like, what if you just said the mantra, I am not responsible? And I was like, what? I was like, for what? He's like, for any of it, for anything for fixing anybody, for bringing Nate back, for making your kids have a good life, 
for being a good widow, for, you know, figuring out the money situation. He's like, what if you just let go of it all and just breathe? And I was like, that is ridiculous, but I'll try it because I'm desperate. And so when the kids got to a point where I didn't know what to say anymore, because anything you've ever talked, you know, when you talk to someone who's in pain and you try to tell them what to do, they're like, are you not listening? Like, I'm not asking you for solutions. I just want you to be here. So honestly, I started to just be there with them. And that meant just like being quiet, which was hugely challenging. Um, but what I saw after I started to do it is they would just, they would actually cycle through on their own. And by the time they were done, they'd say, thank you for listening. And I was like, wait, I didn't even do anything. And so that has changed a whole, and I actually, I'm a very hands-off parent compared to what a lot of people are. Cause I, I think now I'm like, what are you doing? Like they're, they don't need all this involvement, that type of involvement. Um, they need what Nate did, which was just be there with them. Mm, and be present. I be love present that. Where they are. Yeah. And don't try to like, listen to them. Um, so it's been a lot easier. It's a lot easier to parent now. I'm not overwhelmed. I've got two teenagers now and, um, they're all sorts of hot mess every day. <laughs> you know, they're all in puberty and everyone's mad and angry and they don't like their hair and I don't try to fix it. I'm like, okay. And we, 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 we're doing better because mm. of that. Sounds like acceptance as well. Yes. And just like everyone's on their path. You can't, you can't change anyone. You just, you can only change how you respond to them. And it's amazing when people feel like you're really just there with them, how much, um, how much support they feel and how much calmer they are because they just, they don't, again, it goes back to the plane. All people want is to not be alone. We talk about that in coaching a lot because when we make it about us and we try and fix it, people don't actually get to experience the full process. And like you said, they don't get to cycle through in a way that's actually going to support them or heal them or transform them. Exactly. It's perfect for coaching. Yeah. The best coaches just kind of go like, mm-hmm. But yeah. when you think in your mind, if you're a coach or a therapist, you should be talking a lot. Right. But really, it's it's so intuitively backwards. You should just be listening. And I listen, I have a long road to, to hoe on that one, but I'm just, I, but I know where I'm headed. Yeah. The other shift that I love that you made is for a while, when people were asking you how you were doing, you said, well, we're doing it. And it was your daughter who was like, why are you responding in that way? That doesn't make any sense. And that's right. Right. And so you shifted it and you started to change your language. And you said, well, I got to spend 21 years with the greatest man in the world. And now I have his amazing children. He died before we wanted or expected. And boy, do we miss him so much. But we are so grateful for having him. And we are committed to enjoying our lives. We know that this is the best way to honor him. Yeah. That was so beautiful. And I was curious to know, how did people respond when you started saying it in that way? You know, it, that, Emily, it's so funny because it's such relief for the person. Because all they want is for you to be okay. And all anybody intuitively wants is to feel joy for whatever it is. And so it's a lot more fun for the person that's asking to hear this story about love and acceptance. And then they get to be like, that's awesome. You're right. That's so cool. And then they end up sharing like a positive story that they have with Nate or how he impacted their life. And all of a sudden you leave with like a great memory or a great experience or a great conversation as opposed to what, you know, I did in the beginning, which was like, well, I'm a widow, you know, it's every day is a new day. and We're just hanging on. And then all of a sudden, you're like, I don't even know why I just said that. Because like, some days, you, that is true. But many days, life just keeps going. Um, so I think we underestimate the words we say, and then the things we say often, we should always 
be wary or wary, 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 wary of, or maybe (laughs) I don't know. You're weary and you're wary. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really, we talk a lot with the kids about choosing your words carefully because they tell the story. And we, I mean, I see my kids all the time. They get set saying like stupid things they've seen on Snapchat or TikTok and they, they get stuck in your brain. Mm-hmm. So whatever you get stuck in your brain, you, you want it to be something damn good. And especially right. if you're talking about things, if you're a complainer, you'll start to just be a complainer. Um, right. So that's what we, that kind of how we changed it. And then everyone around town started feeling some lightness around it because he was kind of, a, he was a big deal in our town. And so there was a lot of people that didn't know, where, are we supposed to be sad forever? So now whenever I see people, we just laugh about me and we tell stories about it. And it's such a different way. Then there's some other women in my neighborhood whose husbands have died and they've gone very sad. So the whole story's sad and they look sad, you know? Mm-hmm. So I do think it matters um, how we describe what we're going through. And I think we can just, we can tell, you know, what we're putting out into the world based on how the words make us feel. Yeah. Like when you say you're just, you know, you're doing it and, and I, you know, my husband died and I'm a widow, like that's very heavy oh. and that's very somber. And so, you know, in, in other situations, not as extreme as this one, we can just pay attention to the words coming out of our mouth and how they make us feel. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you don't honor if you feel terrible, but you can say, you know, I literally, it's like, it's awful. It's an awful day, but somehow you lighten it with humor or something just to get yourself going again. I, I always worry. I don't want people to think that it doesn't hurt because it right. does, but um, you do have a lot more choice than you think. And I don't want to leave this conversation without talking about football and that whole part of the conversation. Um, my brothers and my dad have been in the world of football, you know, forever. My brother played in college and it was really interesting to read your perspective. And like you said, the NFL gave you so much. You even mentioned that you feel like Nate kind of used the NFL and football as a vehicle to do his greater work in the world, which I really loved. But can you talk a little bit about what you discovered about his brain after um, you went through that whole process? Yeah. So this was probably the hardest part of the book um, for me to write because I really was kind of set on this beautiful story of how the, I mean, it's a hard story, but also just the good parts. But I think it's important if we're going to have an honest conversation that, you know, Nate didn't just die of a heart attack at 42 because he had heart disease. Um, He died of cardiomyopathy of the left ventricle, which is basically the big ventricle that pumps the blood. But what happens is when these really big guys that play football for a long time, so we played, you know, all through middle school, high school, college, and then six years in the NFL. And he was a journeyman. So he was the guy that was always on the field, practicing, trying to make a spot on the team. He wasn't the guy that they were like, don't hit. Um, he was a lineman, which is a notoriously very, very head collision uh, type of position. And so what happens with these big guys, and they say this, like big guys, just like big animals die earlier. So like elephants don't have a long life. There's it's a lot of stress on them. So these linemen, what happens is you can be big and fat and not move and you can live a long time. But if you're a big man and you are always stressing your muscles, including your heart, which is a muscle, it can get overworked or too big. And when a heart gets too big, um, it can't pump anymore. And so Nate's died basically of his left ventricle just being too big. And it's a very common thing that happens in defensive linemen. Um, and I have some stats in the book. But the hardest part was that um, I think people know about CTE. It's the concussion um, disease that people get after you have l- multiple little hits all the time. 
And football is that every day in practice, there's just hit, 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 hit. And over time, you bruise your brain and then lesions can grow and you can get um, CTE, which it can only be tested after or diagnosed after you are dead. So I ended up sending his brain to Boston University to their CTE foundation, where they're doing a ton of research on this. And Nate, about a year after he died, we found out that he did have CTE stage two, three. Um, the worst is stage four, but I don't, you know, I kind of wrote in the book and I want to leave it for discussion because people feel so strongly about football, good or bad. I loved watching football. I love so much about it and I would never allow my son to play. Um, I just wouldn't because it's gotten too big and too hard. And so if Nate had lived, let's say his heart didn't kill him, we would be left with a man that has severe brain damage and could be violent or addicted to drugs or alcohol. And we actually just got an, an article from one of the friends he played with at the Chiefs that they can't find. And he's like, he was made millions. And now he's like living on the streets as a homeless person. And I just, I don't want to lead the discussion around this, but I do want it to be thought of that when we're putting these tiny people into helmets, when they're developing, and then we're having these guys practice day after day, banging it, there, there may be other ways we can still keep football alive without the repetitive hits to the head, because I think we're going to actually see more and more people that are dealing with husbands and fathers that aren't well or that die very early. Um, and that's a big price to pay. And I know that you mentioned looking back, you could see some of the signs of CTE with him. Yeah. And you could see it in his pictures. I mean, you know, when you're married for a long time, you you, you pick up on things, but it's so gradual. But Nate looked, um, you look at the pictures around the time I started having anxiety, he looked like he aged like 10 years overnight. Um, mm. Just like his face dropped, the color wasn't there. That was probably part of the heart. But he just made, and you know, he never had ever yelled at me in our entire marriage. Like he was just too big. He didn't need to. He was like, I would, he's the sweetest, kindest man. And I remember one day I didn't, like I, we were trying to get spectrum, you know, cable and internet can make any couple insane, <laughs> right? I mean, you want to kill somebody. It's, it's like, true. Oh, he's just like, I know. <laughs> and, and, or if like there's a football game on, they can't watch it or whatever. And I remember he was like, why the hell didn't you fix it? And he's like, never raised his voice. I mean, that was about six months before he died. And I remember just somewhere in the back of my mind being like, something's off. Mm. And he was drinking a little bit more. He always was like a guy that drank, but there was just something more medicinal about his drinking than I remember. Like he was taking it to calm down. Um, and I just, I know there's so many women out there that have men that are going through something from CTE and we have a ton of friends in the NFL and many of them have early signs of things. So I just think we would be remiss as a society if we didn't sit down and really say, Hey, this is an issue. We, we can't pretend it. How do we fix it? How do we change it? My mother-in-law would like to take football completely off the planet earth. Um, and I let her speak her voice in the book, but um, I don't know. It's a discussion that I I'm interested in having. I don't have, I only have my experience and I am as, as a, uh, conflicted as anybody, but I know Nate would rather be here than not. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yep. So what do you want people to experience, learn, or feel from the book? Oh man. I mean, I'm a reader. I love to read. I love to write. I love a good book. Um, so my hope, if I, if, if I could, it was just that it was a book that took you on the journey of life that took you on the, the highs and lows of feeling and, and the, the tough stuff and the and the good stuff. And I think 
a lot of people thought this book would like end with like, and everything was fine. And it, it didn't, you know, it ended with like, and here's COVID and I'm still struggling and I'm okay. And I'm still sad. And I really, it's the most honest thing I've ever written because I normally play to the crowd or try to make it all like be okay. And, and, and actually it's not all okay. And it is all okay. So I hope people can come out of it thinking there's like, there's no way to go through this except through it. And there's tools that you can grab onto for you and your kids or anybody when you're going through hard times and they work. If you work them, it's like, Hey, if you work them, they work. And so, you know, you can roll your eyes at meditation. You can roll your eyes at prayer. You can roll your eyes at saying, you know, stupid affirmations in the mirror, but they work. So when you kind of let your ego go and be like, well, shit, these Buddhists have, they must have something like meditation must work. It's still here. Um, so that would be what I say is like, there are ways to get through hard times. It does get better. Everything changes. And if someone dies, you, you don't have to lose them. You don't have to lose them. You can, mm-hmm. you can re-engage with them in a different way. And like I always say, Nate and I are getting along famously now. He does. He's, I haven't seen him in a while, which is unfortunate. Um, he's not been home in many years, but, um, I feel him with me and I, I, I ask him advice all the time and I can hear it. It's like, it's, it's amazing how connected we all are if we tune into that channel. So that's what I hope people read and they enjoy and they see what a great man he was because he, he's worth telling the story about. And what is one way people can create a life that's better than their dreams? That's a question we always ask on the show. Hmm. Better than your dreams. I think living in the present moment, because if you are here and not worried about whatever that, you know, we all have vision boards. We all have an idea of what it would feel like when we, but this is the moment. This is your life right now. And if you can get to that emotional state right now, just gratitude and excitement and just um, curiosity and like ideas that you, you, that you, you have an idea what you want your life to look like, but it's more about what you want to feel, who you want to be. And the details, if we can let go of that a little bit and just go like, I'm, I'm here to be surprised and I'm going to pay attention by sitting right here in this moment and pay attention to all the great gifts that are coming instead of me telling the universe what all the great gifts are. Just like being in a moment and just recognizing what's coming, the people that are coming, the synchronicities that are coming, like when we met, like it's amazing when you get out of the way and just say like, I'm going to have an exceptional life. Show me. And follow the, follow the, the breadcrumbs as opposed to thinking you've got to walk down the path that doesn't have any breadcrumbs. Like stick with the breadcrumbs, mm-hmm. like follow Love the signs. So that's what I would say. Love it. And what is the second half of your life hold for you? Oh, I'm going to crush it. I don't know. I hope sex. <laughs> I hope, I hope, I mean, I'd slept with one person before I got married. So I'm hoping I really get out on the town. I know. Um, um, I hope that I get to do what I've always wanted to do, which was talk to people. And I hope that I can make it funny and that I can make it fun. But I, I always knew that you can't really share anything if you haven't been through anything because nobody wants to hear from people that haven't been through anything. And I didn't want to have to go through things to be able to talk about something, but it turns out that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am, I'm grateful that Nate and I agreed upon this little situation called our life in some other realm. And here we are. And um, he lived a great life. In 42 years and I would assume he would expect me to do the same in the next 40. Um, I'm just excited. I mean, I think being 40 as a woman's a really cool place to be. So 
I have absolutely no clue how this will all turn out, but I have no doubt I'm going to be like, holy shit, that was amazing. Well, thank you so much for writing this book. It touched me so much. And I'm just grateful for everything that you've learned and what you passed on to me through your words. And at the time that we're releasing this, the book is out. So I want everyone to go get it. It's called Second Half. And we'll definitely link it in the show notes. And um, anything else you want to share? No, I'm just, I think you're one of the many people along the way that, you know, you can sit, you can uh, run into it some housewarming party in Austin, like trying to pick up a cracker in a cheese square. And, um, you know, people just pay attention to the synchronicities. And I'm so glad that I met you. I'm excited for you and your new adventure, because I know you're going through a great transition. And it's always good on the other side of change. And so I, I look forward to coming to visit you guys in Austin. And um, I think everybody's everybody's in a, in a good spot. So I'm happy for you. Thank you so much. Well, we'll be watching. We can't wait to see your second half unfold. So thank Thank you you. so much for your time, Kelsey. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the I Heart My Life show. Now do us a favor and tell people about this episode. It's truly our duty to make sure that the I Heart My Life movement is spread far and wide. The truth is life can be challenging, but it is possible for all women to love themselves and their lives. And while you're at it, send a link to this episode to three of your friends today, or maybe even post it on social media. Use the hashtag IHurtMyLifeShow. That's hashtag IHurtMyLifeShow. And if you'd like to help me personally, then please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Give us some stars, cheer us on, and leave a review because believe it or not, that stuff actually really does help. And I read all of them. Please remember everything you desire is meant for you and possible. Keep showing up, taking action, and believing in your dreams.